Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young men walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Did you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, their wa to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, the 499th year of the Reformation. If you count the Reformation from the beginning of Martin Luther's writings. Now, it's a little bit hard to uh, put a beginning date on a thing such as the Reformation. Obviously, the Reformation is not understood in terms contra to the rest of church history. And also, it didn't begin with Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis on the church door. But nevertheless, it was a great revival, a great restoration, if you will, of the importance of the scriptures. 
And 500 years later, after, be, after the beginning of the Reformation, we find ourselves in the American church in need of another Reformation concerning not only the spiritual gifts, something I talked about in my address to the ARC last Saturday, also a renewal of the vision of the church, something that's been woefully underappreciated in the Protestant movement, but most importantly, I think, maybe not most importantly, but certainly equally among the other two, is the recovery of the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament is a book that we are very familiar with, and so it's been our mission at GCF to restore a deep integration, understanding with, and use of the Old Testament. And the reason why it has been neglected is primarily a number of theological errors which have caused us to neglect the importance of the Old Testament, seeing it as not applicable, neither for a real sense, such as some people believe that the law has passed away in, in such a way as to say that it doesn't have any meaning for us, that we can't understand anything of it, uh, that it can't benefit us. But in addition to that, we, we become Christians who can't reason ethically. And the reason why we can't reason ethically is we postulate or we suppose we, we set up for our own selves a doctrine called natural law. And that natural law doctrine means that there is a common law that all men are able to observe and to perceive and that uh, is able to be reasoned to and appealed to. And we don't have to go to the scriptures. We can just go to a common ethic among all other men. But this is not the case. The scriptures reason in a certain way. They reason in a particular manner, and that reasoning must be adopted and held to. We're going to see something in today's passage that I believe, can, I'm convinced, actually is a vindication of God's righteousness. And one of the great errors, because we don't know how to reason ethically, is when we then return to the Old Testament stories, we read into the text certain things that are not there that distract us from the intention of the author. And I'm convinced this passage has one of those. If you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt, the Disney movie, or you've possibly, I don't think this is even covered, maybe it's covered in the Ten Commandments, the, the old one with Yul Brenner and all those guys, Charlton Heston. Uh, perhaps, I don't even remember if they cover this story, but modern notions of what takes place in this passage with Moses are deeply unhelpful because of what he does here in slaying the Egyptian. And because we get that wrong, which is based on the fact that we can't reason ethically because we have an ethic that is non-scriptural, we miss the glory of Christ. Something that Moses does, which we're going to examine in detail, but if we connect the dots in the right way, is deeply helpful. And so learning how to read the scriptures, learning how to read the Old Testament, not only how it speaks to Christ, although that is obviously our chief goal, but putting some skin around what does that mean? We can't just all come to the scriptures and say, sure, Christ is in the Old Testament, and agree to that proposition without beginning to learn from the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament use of those scriptures in how we ought to see Christ in those passages. For the last few weeks, we've been discussing Moses and his authority over the people of Israel and, and God's use in, of, of his role in delivering them. But we're going to actually backtrack. We're rewinding. Uh, last week we talked about Miriam, and now we're, which is after the Exodus. Now we're going all the way to the beginning of Moses' life, uh, which is before the Exodus, in order to see how Christ is a shadow or a type of, a pointer to 
Jesus Christ. And so Moses is not to be understood just as pointing to Christ in some sort of deliverance that takes place in signs and wonders alone, but really his entire life is used by God to say something about the nature of the Messiah Redeemer who will come to save his people. And so uh, being that we're all familiar very much with the Exodus story, the Exodus account is very, of all the parts of scripture besides the Gospels, perhaps the Exodus is still at most in our cultural mind or the the collective cultural experience in the West here in America. Uh, I thought it helpful to to turn to portions that are a little bit outside of the, the Exodus but still concern Moses. The reason why we're spending so much time on Moses is because he's sort of the easiest, um, maybe maybe Abraham, maybe David, but certainly Moses is one of the chief uh, characters who are the easiest to see the implications. So if you have any understanding about Christ uh, and you're beginning to learn how to read the Old Testament for all that it has to present about him, then you ought to start with the kind of loudest, uh, loudest sounds or loudest uh, speakers. And so I'm convinced that when Moses prophesied that God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me from among your brothers, that he means this in a way that we can infer from major portions of Moses' life something that has an application in Christ's life. And that in making the connection the vision of Christ, the glory of Christ, is not added to, but rather it's further revealed. Many of you probably never had the joy of having a Polaroid develop in your hand. How many of you didn't? You have no idea. Okay, Polaroids are not that old. Uh, You take a Polaroid picture, and the image is set in the Polaroid when it comes right out of the machine but it is not revealed until moments after as the chemical processes begin to take place. The color sets in. First you see what looks kind of like a, a maybe a watercolor or a pencil sketch. And as it develops, more and more of the true image comes about. That is what we do when we learn how to read the Old Testament scriptures for all there is. The image is set. Christ is revealed. The faith has been handed down to the saints once and for all. But nevertheless, that picture is supposed to become increasingly clearer. And as that picture becomes increasingly clearer, I believe the way that the Bible speaks of Christian transformation, that as we behold Christ's image, we ourselves are transformed. And so I would just encourage you, if you feel like this sort of reading is too hard for you, or that this sort of reading is challenging you to to step outside your comfort zone or to press the implications of the scripture, to engage your mind and not just try to read the scriptures as some devotional thing that uh, doesn't involve your mind, I would encourage you that doing that sort of work actually is deeply fruitful in the long run. It may not make sense now, but you do not harvest immediately after sowing. That is how the word of God is presented by Christ, that it is something which must be planted and then only can bear fruit after a season. And so... I would just say that if you are being stretched by these things, stick with it. Uh, there, there are deep and wonderful treasures to be found. Um, not only King David in writing his psalm that he would see wonderful things from, from the law, but uh, not only does, does David extol the virtues of the scriptures, but theologians throughout the centuries have. 
One of my favorite ones is a man by the name of George Herbert, who was an English minister in the 1600s, immediately preceded the career of John Donne, if you might know John Donne. And he described the scriptures as a constellation. And each verse is like a star. And as the verses are connected together, the emerging picture begins to take shape. And this is what I think the vision of the scriptures is, is that of course each book is consistent, of course the scripture does not lie, but all the books have to speak together. They are not just a, a monotone, they are a choir, and they have diverse voices, and hearing them together, we can hear the beauty. So I would uh, just want to take us through a quick portion of Moses' life as it speaks to the glory of Christ. First, we're going to look at the context of the people of Israel as a shepherding people. This is so important in forming a beginning motif in the scriptures that the, the scriptures themselves give much space to this. Now, when we're speaking about these things, that the scriptures emphasize these things, we are not accusing the writers of taking liberty with the facts. But rather, in understanding and reading this way, beginning to see God's redemptive history in this fashion, we uphold the truth and authority of the scriptures and say even further than the writers intended this, that the original divine writer intended this. That is to say, God, as he was weaving events, as he was rotting history through the rule of his power, that as he sovereignly is intending in the things which really happened, he was forming a story. That there, were, that there are many layers, many threads, if you will, in this divine tapestry of redemption. That God, as he was interacting with his people, was forming them in such a way that he would use certain aspects of their life vocation, culture, art, worship, uh, songs, scripture readings, prophecies, and the symbols and words used within them in order that they might be a language in which he can speak. And that language really is God's condescension to us. Probably one of the favorite things that I have experienced over the last five or six months in being a new father is delighting in communicating with my daughter even though I have to speak in a way that is ridiculous. <laughs> now, when, when I do this, I am intending to communicate real, true things to my daughter, that I love her, that I appreciate her, that I think she's cute, that I think she's silly, that she's fun, that I'm going to be here for her, etc. And my condescension does not diminish me, but actually exalts her. That is to say, in the, the philosophy of the self and the other, someone who speaks in a language which the other cannot comprehend, he is the one making the communication error, not the other. And God, in his revelation to us, condescends so as to speak to us in a language that we might understand. And that language is the language of history, of events, of character, of poetry, and finally, as we saw in the incarnation of his son. God is setting all of these images and motifs and themes up so that he can use them. And so I believe that it's important for us to see one of the most major themes of Scripture, the aspect of God's people as a shepherding community. After that, we're going to look at Moses' birth and flight into Egypt, uh, or sorry, out of Egypt, and how that then immediately contrasts with Christ's birth, flight to Egypt, and ministry. 
how all of these are set up in a divine story to show the glory of Christ, that we might come to rest in him and come to be shepherded by him. So from the very beginning of God's book, God's people have always been identified with the things of the flock. At first, Adam, although he doesn't look like a shepherd, one of his first jobs in the garden is to tend and keep the garden, a place in which he would live, and then he's commissioned by God just before the creation of the woman that the man would have a role in calling forth and identifying all the animals. God brings each animal to Adam and he then identifies it, distinguishes it from the other creatures and names it. It says that God wished to see what Adam would call the animal. And so at the very beginning, Adam has a shepherding role. He is taking care of the animals. He is taking dominion over the beasts of the field. As soon as Adam and Eve uh, sin in the garden, as they're being expelled, God covers them with a skin. And that skin or leather or hide hat was only brought about through the slaying of a beast. Uh, many believe that it is a lamb, although the, the Hebrew in Genesis 3 doesn't specify a lamb. It might be easily inferred. At least it is something that is a beast of the field, maybe a cattle or an ox, but most likely, and I think it would not be uh, a stretch to say that it's a lamb. Why does God do this? Because the fig leaves, which are not only a real thing that Adam and Eve did, but also a metaphor for man's attempt to hide his sin, those fig leaves are ultimately fruitless. Think about the nature of what a fig leaf covering would be. You would go up to a fig tree, you would cut off branches, and then you would weave them into some sort of form. Here's the problem with that. In making the garment of fig leaves and branches, you have cut them off from the source of life, and they will wither and die, and the covering will be exposed. That is a metaphor, of course, for Adam's attempt to hide himself and to cover himself. It is ultimately failing. So immediately after this, Abel, when Cain and Abel come to worship God in their due time, Abel brings something from the flock. And it says that he brings something that is of not only the best part of the flock, but the fat part of the flock. I always enjoy this whenever I have a wonderful steak. Some people don't eat the fat in their steak, and I love the fat in the steak. Now, as long as it's not too thick, it's delightful and enjoyable. The point being that Abel was presenting the best of his flock to Yahweh. Abel, of course, is the righteous son, and he is slain by his brother Cain, who is a worker of the ground. And so Abel is a sign of the flock. Abraham himself was a mighty shepherd, a nomadic person. It does not say that Abraham only tended sheep, but rather he also had camels and probably cattle and goats, sure, assuredly, as well as sheep. And he was a mighty shepherd. He was a mighty man who had a great flock, such that he had not only servants to attend that flock, but he had enough money and enough servants to have an army in that flock. So I just want to dispel forever the picture of Ab Abraham walking through the desert with 20 goats. <laughs> Abraham had hundreds and hundreds. I mean, his flock was huge, and he had servants enough to defeat five kings. When Lot gets taken by the various five kings around in the areas near Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham rises up and delivers Lot from those kings and takes their plunder. 
As soon as they go up the mountain, Abraham tells Isaac that God will provide himself the lamb. And of course, we can easily see the Christological implication there. Abraham is trusting that God will provide not only for his son, but also at the flock. And God is providing for himself, it says in the English standard, an ascension offering or a burnt offering. But the word really is an ascension offering. The fact that Abraham and Isaac must appear before God. And as they ascend the mountain to offer a sacrifice or an offering, it is an ascension offering. And so we see the implication that God cannot be approached in our own standing, but that if we were to come before God, we must be cut and burned. This is what the flaming sword was in the, in the garden, that if, Abra- if Adam and Eve wished to get back into the garden, they would have to be cut and burned because they would pass through that sword. Before God calls Jacob to flee from Laban, he prospers Laban's flock in Jacob's hand. And in fact, Jacob blesses Laban's flock so much and so greatly that he sets up his own little skimming operation and he begins to take the stronger parts of of Laban's flock. He's the first genetic breeder that we see in the history of the world. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the story. It's quite amazing. It's quite sophisticated. And Jacob plunders Laban in a sense, although he does no unrighteousness to him. But the, the point of that is this, that God's blessing on all of his people throughout the scriptures up until the point of Jacob and then continuing with Joseph as we'll see in a moment and really throughout the entire scriptures, that God's blessing on his people through their administration of unrighteous things always was done to confirm the surety, the success, and the final glory of his covenant. That is, God gives blessings and graces on his people in order to confirm the thing all the more. So when Joseph goes down to Egypt, he prospers Egypt by telling them to store grain. Remember, Pharaoh has a dream that seven cattle come up out of the Nile and then seven other, and the first seven are fat. They're very good choice cattle. And then the seven other cattle that come up are skinny and they eat the other cattle. This is a very terrifying dream. Uh, cows are vegetarians. Um, skinny cattle eating other cattle must have been quite gruesome. The point being that Pharaoh interprets, or uh, Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh and says that there will be a famine on all the land, such as has never occurred. And um, at, at this point, God uses Joseph to not only save Egypt, not only protect them from the famine, but really, in a, in a very real way, Joseph saves the entire world. He provides food, and Egypt is glorified. Egypt becomes wealthy through the selling of the fields of the, of the uh, Egyptians to Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh consolidates power, and Egypt becomes a mighty nation. They acquire gold, they acquire land, and they acquire servants and people. And Joseph blesses Egypt in order that God might bring her down. But he does this in a way, and as he's doing this, he calls his brothers, to come and reside down there. See, the brothers of Joseph, although they had done him evil, come and rest in the shade of Joseph's provision. And in this, he tells them to emphasize the nature of their calling as shepherds. Genesis 46, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. 
for their, uh, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. The whole nation of Israel is prefigured here in Jacob and his sons. That is, the, the sons are the heads of the tribes. And it says that they're all shepherds. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Verse 34, you shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth and even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, this was obviously not a lie. If if you know how to read the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. They were all herdsmen. And so these boys have adopted the family business. And they've come down to to Egypt to find rest in Joseph's provision. And then they are told to emphasize this fact to the Egyptians. Pharaoh says, uh, sorry, Joseph says this, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we're not given a lot of understanding of why this is the case. Nevertheless, Joseph does this so that the people of the Hebrews would be culturally distinct from the people of the Egyptians. That is, they wouldn't mesh. They wouldn't get lost through intermarriage and through, uh, you know, moving in with one another. There would be a cultural and diverse identity. And he does this, and the deep enmity, which is, of course, at work between the seed and the serpent, is, sa- is the same enmity here. That is to say that there are people who the Egyptians hate, and those people are shepherds. And it just so happens to be the case that the Hebrews are shepherds. <clears throat> the point being here that there is an antipathy. There is a hatred between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and it's already at work at this early stage in the passage. Joseph dies, and after this, the Egyptians come and persecute the people. Now, this persecution was not merited, nor was it uh, deserved. It It wasn't something that they had earned. Nevertheless, God uses it for his own glory. This brings us up to Moses. But I think it's important that we see Moses and what he does for the people of Israel in the context of the fact that the people of Israel are a shepherding people. They are not simply nomadic people. They're not simply, as, as they will become, farmers or agri- agrarian people. They are shepherding people. They tend the flock. So before the time of Moses' birth, when we arrive to Moses in the story, Pharaoh has commanded an evil and wicked thing that all of the males of the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile. And this idea is, it has some aspect of, I think, a idolatry in it. That is, not only did the Egyptians worship the Nile, but they saw it as their sense of blessing, their sense of prosperity. And so they saw the Nile as a a avenue by which the gods of the Egyptians might be appeased. And so I think that this aspect is not only showing a rivalry, because the people of the Hebrews are growing great, it also is somewhat idolatrous. We see this go on in the land of Canaan when the Israelites begin to offer up their children to Moloch. The same idea is taking place. that They might give their children over to the Nile that it would be received and that the Nile would leap, uh, lap them up, if you will. <clears throat> At this time, Pharaoh's mother, or Joseph's, sorry, Moses' mother defies the command of the Egyptians and she defies it for a particular reason, the righteousness of God. And what she does in this story is she creates a basket 
of bulrushes and forms it with bitumen and pitch. One of the interesting things of the scriptures is up until this point, the only time pitch had been used before is in the Ark of Noah. And so she understands or doesn't understand, but nevertheless does this very thing. She makes an ark, if you will, in which she places Moses and then puts him on the waters. Moses goes forth and ultimately is seen by Pharaoh's daughter. <clears throat> by faith, uh, Hebrews eleven twenty three. by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, this is something that the scriptures commend as a righteous refusal to follow the governmental authorities. Christians, if you are not yet understanding that there is a righteous refusal of governmental authorities, you must develop this theology now. Just as a cultural aside here, completely irrelevant to my point, but maintained by the scriptures, Pharaoh is not God. That's the whole point of this story, in fact. Moses' life is a prophetic testimony of the futility of tyrants. I want you to begin to think and, and, uh, about the story and how God uses Moses, the one who gets away from the command of Pharaoh, to, in order to undo the evils that Pharaoh has done. Even though Pharaoh oppresses the people, not all of them obey. His command is not omnipotent. Although he issues a thing, it does not come to pass. I think one of the things that's very interesting about this passage is that God uses Pharaoh's own daughter to subvert Pharaoh's plan. I, I hope you see the irony there. It's often the case when we become familiar with these stories, especially those as, as Christians, that we, we just read it and we're like, oh, well, of course, yeah, that, this, that part of the story, and then we'll move on. Pressing out the implication of this, it's highly ironic. Pharaoh commands this to be done in all of Egypt, but he can't even control his own household. So from the beginning of Moses' adulthood, after he's rescued from Pharaoh's, by Pharaoh's daughter, he begins to identify with the plight of his people such that he interposes in their suffering. He, he steps in and says something and does something about it. Exodus 2, verse 11, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out of his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Here was what I was referring to earlier, that there are times when we do not see the scriptures. We read into the scriptures our own ethic and think that the scriptures are on our side, yet there is not a word of confidence that is, the, the scripture doesn't give us any evidence or any justification for our position, but rather, and in fact, we might be able to argue strongly to the contrary, that Moses sinned here. We have no justification for saying that. While you may assume that Moses does wrong, nothing from the text indicates that this wasn't a justified use of force on the part of Moses. Why is it important to see this? because I believe that there's a connection here that is deeply important. Moses departs for fear of reprisal, not fear that he would be caught and judged righteously. See, we, we, we have this common law doctrine, and so we think, oh, well, the Egypt, he's afraid that he'll be caught and tried. But in the Egyptian culture, in the Egyptian law, anyone who was not an Egyptian who killed an Egyptian was automatically guilty. It's not like God's law, which is unique and special in history, that present a justified use of force. 
in any culture around the world at this time, if you were not a native and you killed a native, you were already guilty. And so Moses is not looking around in some sort of premeditated murder. He's fearing reprisal, unjust reprisal. After Moses flees Egypt, his next encounter is immediately to deliver the priests of Midian's daughters from these false shepherds. In verse 16, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Verse 17, The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. See, Moses here is not only interposing in the plight of the people, but also does something with these daughters, the priests of Midian, uh, the, the daughters of the priests of Midian, that tells us about what Moses is going to do. These men, these shepherds who come up and harass these daughters, are false shepherds. They don't offer water to the daughters' flocks. Rather, they drive them away from the source of water. And understanding this allegory, it helps us to see Moses' action. He says in, in, in verse 19, they tell their father, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And so I'm convinced that Moses actually takes, uh, he, he lives out the entire story of the Exodus in his life before he is called by God. This was why I was saying it's important to not see Moses' striking of the Egyptian as an evil thing necessarily, but rather to wait until we might be able to make a good judgment on it. To escape the wrath of Pharaoh, Moses passes through the waters, just as the people will later pass through the Red Sea. Now, he does this based on the obedience of his parents, but that's a doctrine for another day. He strikes an Egyptian, but Yahweh will come and strike every Egyptian house. See, this is why if you automatically assume an ethic that is not in the scriptures, you miss the glory of God. Moses is living out the Exodus before the people live out the Exodus. Moses flees Egypt while Pharaoh pursues and he enters in the wilderness. He brings forth water in the wilderness and feeds and waters the flock, just as he will from the rock at Meribah and Massa. While in the wilderness, Moses hears from God in the fire at the burning bush just as the people will be led in spiritual direction as they go through their way in the wilderness by the cloud of fire and the pillar of smoke. This is Moses' action in suffering the abuse that is due on the people, what they will have to go through so that he might be a sympathetic priest. That is, through the action of delivering the people, the people would suffer under plight, and Moses goes through this beforehand and the point that I am trying to make is this, that this story is too great to be coincidental. This story is too great to be happenstance. God is writing something greater, surely something about his son. So let's go to Hebrews as we just were about, I think, seven weeks ago. Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible. Just as a, a way of uh, clarity, verse 27 is not referring to his initial flight, where, the, where Exodus 2 says he was afraid, but rather his final flight, 
when he no longer was afraid of Pharaoh. It's not that his initial sin, or it's not that his initial fear of Pharaoh was a sin. Rather, it's just that Hebrews eleven twenty seven is talking about his final flight out of Egypt. So just as Pharaoh commands all male children to be killed, so also at the time of Christ's birth, Herod had issued an edict that all who were in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions were to be slain, all the males. And so one of the things that's amazing about this is what it says about the state of the people. As Moses was saved by uh, God, so also Mary and Joseph are warned to flee. But this time, they don't flee into uh, out from Egypt, but rather they flee into Egypt. Matthew two fourteen and 15, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed until into Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew's quotation here of the prophet shows us the spiritual state of Israel. Now, I want you to, to think about this for a second. And, and I want you to make the parallels here. It's not talking about, Matthew's not quoting this prophet in order to say that Christ was called out of Egypt when Christ returns to the land, but rather that God calls Christ to leave Egypt, which is Israel. Here we have the parallel. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Pharaoh issues the edict to kill the children. Pharaoh is in Egypt. Herod is in Palestine. Herod issues the edict to kill the Hebrew children. Herod is in Israel, but really, Herod is in Egypt. That is to say that the point that Matthew's trying to make is Israel has become Egypt. They look just like the Egyptians because Herod is looking just like Pharaoh. Israel, of course, is supposed to have a god or a king that's instructed by God's law, not one that looks like the kings of the other nations. Just as Moses saw the plight of his people, Christ in his ministry sees the condition of his people. Matthew 9, 35 through 36, Jesus went throughout all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Christ's glory in his compassion for the sake of his people was prefigured by Moses. And that prefiguring tells us about the nature and aspect of what Christ will do. He's going to bring about a new exodus. Christ's compassion for the people is seen as the tender heart of a shepherd. Christ comes into the world to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but not only that, to deliver those who through bondage to sin were trapped under the law. Not that the law trapped them, but that they were unable to complete it. Now, of course, we, we know that no flesh shall be justified by doing the works of the law. Nevertheless, Christ did do the works of the law. Consider the spirit of the law here in Deuteronomy 22. This is why I encourage you to begin to adopt the scriptural ethic to understand what it's talking about when we decide something is evil or righteous. Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you, and you do not know where he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Do you see the trust in God that you have to have in verse 2? You have to not only restore your neighbor's 
ox, donkey, sheep, goat, whatever. You have to then, if your brother doesn't live near you, if you don't know whose it is, you have to take it to your house, treat it as your own, feed it, and then when your brother shows up, give it away. And we accuse the law of God of being harsh. Verse 3, And you shall do the same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses, and you may find, you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Now, of course, this ethic is deeply hard to impl- implement in your life. Can you, can you consider for just a moment what this would look like if you began to do this? You might have your entire life filled up with these sorts of things. Nevertheless, that is what God wishes to be at operation in his people, for all of the people to, to shepherd each other's things. See, you, here you're commanded to shepherd your neighbor's donkey, ox, goat, what have you. The point being this, that this law is not only given to God's people in order that they might have a righteous society, but it really is given in order for us to see the glory of Christ, what he does in his earthly ministry, completely, perfectly fulfilling this law. As Paul teaches us to read in 1 Corinthians 9, surely God is not concerned with oxen. Obviously, the importance of restoring your neighbor is more important than restoring your neighbor's ox. It is not just about physical things, but rather about spiritual things as well that God is concerned Through this law, we see the glory of Christ such that in his perfect fulfillment, in his earthly ministry, he kept the entire law, including this provision, as it is spiritually understood to be his shepherding of the people. Christ rescues all the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and even beyond that. When he's approached by the Canaanite woman that she might have her daughter healed uh, or delivered, um, what have you, He says, I have come to restore the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he then, you know, presses this issue. And she basically says, well, you know, I still need you. And he recognizes her deep faith. See, Christ is not only considering the neighbor's donkey. He's also considering the stranger and the alien among their midst. Furthermore, when Christ is doing battle with the Pharisees, he is not just trying to win a religious contest. We miss the point of his confrontation being in public. He confronts the Pharisees that he might deliver the people from their blind adherence to listening to the Pharisees in their legalism and so as keeping the harsh and oppressive burdens upon them. That's what it means in Deuteronomy 22, verse 4, that you shall not see your brother's donkey or oxen fallen down. You shall help him to lift up again. That is the point of what Jesus was condemning the Pharisees for, is they were laying this bondage and legalism on people such that they could not even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Christ is not only the great shepherd who restores all the lost sheep, he also restores those who are outside the people of Israel as a nation at the time and also delivers them up from their burdens. Christ's ministry in gathering his flock, though perfect, is not yet complete. Christ, in his wonderful high priestly shepherding role, appoints under-shepherds who he gives to his people that those under-shepherds might carry on the exact same ministry that he has. 
and he himself is still drawing a flock from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what we see at the end of the scriptures in, verse, in Revelation 4 and 5, around God's throne as the church is presented in her spiritual state, attending to worship, we see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ is not only a shepherd of Israel, Christ is shepherding the nations, namely his people. And as he is appointed under shepherds, he does this for the health of his people. One of my favorite passages, something that I return to over and over again, is 1 Peter 5, because it is a great consolation for anyone who's involved in ministry or discipleship or pastoring that pastoral shepherding work is deeply deeply troubling at times, and yet Christ promises to give an unfading crown. He promises to restore and to bless and to uh, to honor those who uphold his model of shepherding. So my question to you is this, are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need to be shepherded by Christ? It's not enough to see the glory of Christ in all of these ways, that he is the shepherd of his people, that he offers them water in the wilderness, and not come to him to drink from him. This is what Christ is doing in forming a people. And at the last, as the wolves are surrounding his flock, Christ goes to the place of death in order to interpose between his flock and those forces which, ought to, or which seek to persecute them and kill them. As Christ goes up onto the cross after he dies at his final hour, his side is pierced. And out from that piercing flow two things, blood and water. And those two things are spiritually understood to be a deep cleansing and atonement of sin such that you might be washed perfectly and totally. That no matter what you have done in your life, that iniquity that you have committed before God and against your neighbor, that that might be washed, cleansed, set aside, removed. And not only does blood pour out, but also water. The point being that Christ died of thirst and yet his thirst has become for you a wellspring of everlasting life, such that if you drink of it, you likewise will have living waters coming forth from you that you might be able to give to your neighbor. But do not miss the point here at all. Christ is not just a shepherd in a theoretical sense. Are you thirsty for Christ? Do you recognize your need to be shepherded by Christ? Christ says of his own, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That is what it means to come, not only to see Christ as a beautiful shepherd, a glorious, good, true shepherd, but also to become one of his sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that we would see the glories of Christ and that in seeing the glory of Christ, we would come, we would submit to his yoke, that we would become part of his flock that you would give us the grace of entering, that we would enter by him because he is the only door to enter into your people. We pray that you would give us an, a resolution, a, a deep knowing of our need, that we would not seek to try to find wells in the desert on our own, but that we would come and drink of Christ and that we would be satisfied. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the great gift of knowing our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.